welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Just this is the portion we're going to read, just this section here, so uh, everybody with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat to swallow a camel. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you. Um, that it's living and active, it's alive, and can speak to us right here where we are in our culture. And God, we just ask that uh, it be planted into the depths of our heart instead of going in the ear and sitting in the memory banks. Let it actually go into the most uh, deep place in our life, in our very heart, and let it produce the fruit of the kingdom of God so that as we walk through this life, we would bear the fruit of the kingdom of God where we go. And then the seeds uh, would drop, and then more kingdom trees would spring up. So everywhere we go, gardens spring up around us because the fruit of your kingdom is evident in our life. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. 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 Pastor, that was preaching. That wasn't actually a prayer. You started preaching in the middle of your prayer. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Heidi. Thanks for, for rocking the keys. Heidi, the keys. place with y'all. Uh, I'm going to continue this message. Um, I'm going to continue this message. I've been writing and thinking in this place called A Higher Hierarchy, and I want to, I want to talk about what I mean by that, and um, I, want to, I want to just show you some things in the scripture that I think we're missing in our culture. Um, in the past, we've, we've used to go through scripture line by line, like, like starting with this passage and just work our way through many chapters. And we're doing something different right now. I don't know, maybe we'll go back to that other thing we did before. But right now, I'm just trying to roll being led by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so this, this idea of a higher hierarchy, which is from heaven, there's a higher system of hierarchical order or law that God, God gives us. And you can say, David, what's a hierarchy? It is a word that I've been saying too much over the last six months is what it is. I, it's my new favorite word. Um, but it means a structure of importance. So there's a, there's a categorical system, and on the top there are very important things, and on the bottom there are lesser things of importance. And hierarchies are usually found in authoritarian systems, and um, systems of law, and systems of management or, or orderly structure. And so I want to start with couple of basic statements, and then I'll we'll jump into this Matthew 23. The scripture this morning is very intense, and um, I didn't say it, Jesus said it, and so I want to talk about why we think the scripture is important, first of all. So first of all, we believe in God. We all, we're all pretty cool there. We're all on that page. <laughs> we're starting there together. We believe in God. Okay, and so I've talked to people that are like, well, yeah, okay, we can believe in God, but we don't believe that he ever, he can do stuff today in our lives. And I'm like, okay, so wait, you believe in a God that can create the universe out of nothing, right? That, that in a miraculous way, he can create all of this and all of, all of the stuff, but he can't do anything miraculous in, in our time right now. He can only do it once. 
how do you believe that? And the person says to me, well, I just don't have evidence that God does miracles anymore. And I said, you have a, you have, your, your argument is logically fallacious based upon evidence. So if you saw evidence in the contrary, you would say, well, then I believe you're right. And what do I mean by that? You can't say God miraculously created the world in one moment, the entire universe, and then also say, but he can't do miracles anymore. It just doesn't, it's not logically consistent. There's nowhere in the scripture that says that. There's no, there's no place in that God says, and by the way, in 2012, I'm just going to stop miracles and just hang out until I come back. It just is not there. And so we believe in God that he created and ordered this universe that we live in. And then, apart from that, we believe that he does miraculous things in this universe. And one of the things he did that's miraculous is that he brought Jesus to the earth. Are we good on point number two? Everybody still in agreement here? And Jesus, Colossians 1.15 says, is the, is the image of the invisible God. So an invisible God created the visible universe, and then that invisible God came to this visible universe in his visible state, in the image and likeness, in the, in the exact image of this invisible God, and decided to tell humans things. We're all still following, right? This is my lawyer day. I'm using my lawyer skills to build this case. So we believe that God said things in the, in, in the person of his son, Jesus, and there's a tripart God, and there's a tri trinity, and that's confusing, we won't talk about that today. But he said things, and those things were recorded. Yes, we believe that. And those things we have in these four books, and a little bit in the book of Acts, Jesus talks to there, um, called Revelation, he talks there too for John, but specifically in the, in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is not a synoptic gospel, it's from... John's own experience is structured a little bit differently. And in those books, we see that Jesus, who we just, we all are with this, is God, right? So he knows how things start, how they end, how things are built, all those things. And then Jesus talks to human beings. So God, who created the universe, is speaking to human beings through this scripture. And we also agree that there are thousands of copies of the scripture, and it was, it was taken from people and faithfully passed on to others. Because, for instance, pretend, Landon, God shows up to your house one day, and he's like, Landon, go buy a green suit at the, at the suit store. And then you come out, and it's like, literally, God, you have this experience, you come out, and you're like, guys, God just told me I was supposed to be in charge of the world, and um, you're all supposed to give me your money. How likely is it? that Laman is not only going to not do what God says, that God literally comes down, proves himself by miraculous stuff, rises from the dead, that Laman's going to lie about what he said and then tell people to do something different. If it's actually God, you're like, he's not going to... Why would you ever lie about the testimony of God to your own death, to being eaten by lions and crucified upside down like Apostle Peter? You, there's no incentive to just create a fictional story about what Jesus said. There, there's a disincentive, because if you follow it, you die in Rome in the first and second centuries. So the only reason you would hold on to this is if you believed it was literally God himself speaking. And so in the New Testament, God speaks about a lot of things, and a lot of things we don't talk about in the church anymore. We forget them, we cut them out because they're uncomfortable. We mention them on a midweek service when hopefully everyone doesn't show up. And we're like, well, faithful to the Holy Spirit, we're going to on a midweek service. Uh, I was telling a buddy, I spoke about sexual immorality a couple years ago and expounded on issues of sexual immorality. And he said, David, I can't believe you did that on a Sunday morning. And I was like, bro, it, 
I'm, I'm embarrassed for you. Like that, I would. That is like you would imagine that I would cut out the scripture and just say, "I'm just going to say the nice stuff. Please come back and give me your money." You know, like that's the kind of attitude. So let's look at some tough things real quick. And I wanted to build this by saying these are not my ideas, right? These are not a system of man-made ideas by a, by a religion that's interpreted a certain, certain way. These are literally God's words given to mankind. Here we go. Matthew 23, 20, verse 23. Chapter 23, verse 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites? Now, in the King James Version, the ESV says it the same way. The New King James Version says, woe to you. And we don't really get woe. Like, whoa, horsey. You know, that's what we think of when we think of woe. Like, somebody's riding a horse, and Jesus is like, woe to you, horses. That's not what he actually means. He means horrible woe is going to come upon you. He's not talking to Calvinists. He's talking to Pharisees and he's saying to them, something horrible is about to come upon you. And that's why I like the NLT better because we don't get the vernacular. But it says this in verse 23, chapter 23, verse 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law and Pharisees? What sorrow awaits you? Um, so God himself, the creator of the universe, is talking to human beings and he says, a horrible thing awaits you. And these are the people that are leading the church and teaching the church and the leaders that are telling people how to behave, how to think, how to live their life. And God comes to earth and he says, you guys that are representing me poorly, what horrible things await you? It's pretty absolutely as scary as it can possibly be. Do you know what I'm saying? And then, and then you say, okay, well, David, what, is, what awaits them? Is it like, like a really bad hangnail? <laughs> what questions? What, what awaits I have bad hangnail last week, and I was like, I need an My wife's like, you need to stop eating gummy bears, and what you need to do. Sugars. All right, sorry. Um, so we find out actually specifically what the horrible thing that awaits them is in verse 33, This literally this passage of Scripture. And Jesus says, woe to you, this is the horrible thing that, that uh, awaits you, you snakes. You son of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? So the horrible thing that awaits the teachers of God's law is going to hell, the judgment of hell. And like some people think, like, well, you're a teacher, so God's probably going to take it easy on you. Like, he's going to take a break on you. It's going to be easier because you were, like, nice half the time and not nice the other half the time. And he's like, no, it's actually the worst. I'm going to be harder on you. And what horrific eternal punishment awaits you is actually the judgment of hell. Well, what do you mean hell? What do you mean? We don't talk about hell in church, right? We just we mention it real briefly. Uh, I want to talk about what hell is briefly so we know the horrors that await these teachers. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. So, Luke 16, it says this, uh, in verse 23, and he went to the place of the dead. So, at the beginning of this parable, Jesus is like, here's a rich man, super wealthy, purple robes, Purple at the time was like the hardest guy to get. It's super expensive, so it's an idea of how wealthy, opulent he is. He's got this castle with a gate around it or some kind of mansion type place, and he walks past this broken, hurting person at the gate every day. They both die. Poor guy and rich guy die. And it says this, and they both, he and he's talking about Lazarus, the rich man, and he went to the place of the dead. So, first of all, there is a place of the dead. 
right? There's a place that we go and get judged by God after this whole show is over. And there, um, in torment, he saw Abraham in, in the far distance, distance with Lazarus, excuse me, Lazarus, poor man, excuse me. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance and Lazarus at his side, and the rich man shouted. Okay, can I just pause here for a second? This is God who created the universe, telling human beings about what happens after they die. Okay? This is not like cowboy, fire and brimstone, weird preacher with a sign that says repent, the weirdo guys that hang out outside of Penn Station. This is God himself telling human beings what happens when they die. Okay? And so the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Son Lazarus over here to dip his, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish and in these flames. So, we know hell is a place that people go that get judged by God um, in their sin. And why is Abraham in this picture? Because Abraham is the father of faith. So Jesus is, is showing us that salvation comes through faith. Lazarus is by Abraham, right? Um, Lazarus is in a place that they can't get to, that's a specific place, and he's being tormented to such a, a degree that he says, just give me one drip of water on me so I can have a tiny bit of relief. And uh, it says this. I'm oh, sorry, the rich man said, have some pity and send Lazarus over here to dip his, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in, these, in, in pain here. Um, what's, what's the point? Well, there's some, obviously, what happens is Abraham's like, I can't do it, man. I can't give you relief. You are placed there in the judgment of God. There are actually whole movements in the church right now, um, led by people like Rob Bell, that that doesn't happen, and they just go to heaven and God is nice, and he just decides to be nice. Because we live in a church that has thrown out the idea of justice, and they think God is just a God of mercy. And he is a God of mercy, but he's a God of justice and of mercy. And if we have no justice, and we have, then we, we actually can't have mercy Mercy literally cannot exist outside of justice. And um, this guy thinks he's living, he's living for himself, he's full of his own goods, he loves his life, he's having a great time, and he doesn't know that in the end is coming for him a judgment by a just God, that he will be sent to a place eternally. Now, um, what are the full implications of hell? Jesus talks about hell more than anyone in the scripture more than anyone in the Old Testament. Actually, the Old Testament is so obscure about hell that the Pharisees didn't know if there even was a hell or not. The Pharisees and Sadducees were split. The Sadducees thought you'd just die and disappear. And the Pharisees, truck reference, amen. Um, and the Pharisees thought you went on and got judged by God and something would happen. They weren't sure what, maybe this Egyptian idea of floating in the river of dead. They weren't sure. But Jesus showed up on the scene and he actually told us, as God, what would happen when this life is over. And so, I'm reading this portion of scripture, Matthew 23, from 23 to 33, and I'm thinking about this idea of a hierarchy of moral order, because people generally don't think they're bad. That's just generally how people go. Even when they do bad, they don't think they're bad. We've all done it. I don't need to give an example. You agree with me there. But, my, but the issue is they don't understand the most important things. They confuse lesser important things with more important things, and they do the lesser important things for their own incentive while rejecting the more important things. 
And so I want to talk about what Jesus said was the most important thing in this list of things, this hierarchy of moral orders. Check it out. It's right here. It's very clear. For you were careful, careful to tithe. This is the New Living Translation. You, you tithe even the tiniest from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. So it would be like today, it would be like, you know, you know, People are like, I've got to tithe for my, I'm like so into tithing, I tithe for my, my regular income. I'm like, when my grandma gives me a birthday card, like I tithe from that too, that's how much I love you, God. And then also, like, somebody buys me a latte, I pour out 10%, and I'm like, that's from big homie. You know, like, I tithe everything. I just literally tithe anything I get. And Jesus is like, good, you should tithe, that's important, do that too. But you're actually missing the bigger things, and the first thing is justice. It says it right here. You neglected the more important matters, justice, mercy, and faith. So, if you want to have um, a cow to, to exist, right, say the cow needs to exist, you need land, and you need grass on that land, and you need water for the cow to live, and then it can live, eat the grass, drink the water, it's good to go. Justice is like the land. If you don't have land, you don't have grass. You don't have anywhere for the grass to go. You don't ever have anywhere for the water to be itself bounded. You literally don't have a place for it to rest upon. There's two places in Psalms that say, Justice justice, and righteousness establish his throne. For his throne is established in righteousness and justice. So the throne of the ever-living, omnipotent, beneficent God is set in justice and righteousness first. Without it, we don't have anything. And so, if you're an asking person, you say, well, what is justice? <laughs> you ask, what is justice? If that's the most important thing, then you should tell me what justice is, because we have a lot of people saying right now in our culture, we want justice, right? And they don't actually understand what justice even is. They're just saying it, and what they mean is equity, or we want equality. But this equality and justice are very different things, right? If my one son shoots somebody and my other son gives somebody a, a gift and they come to me and they say, we want equality. I say, too bad, that's unjust. That's absolute. They're never going to shoot anybody. They may give somebody a cake, but they're not going to shoot anybody. That would be absolutely unjust. And we have a system right now that's saying, look at the world and anywhere you see inequality, that's injustice. That is evil. That is a lie. That is wrong. Injustice does not mean inequality. Inequality can actually mean the perfect execution of justice, and oftentimes does. So what's that word mean? I'm going to look at both the Greek and the Hebrew of that word. Psalm 89, 14, as I mentioned, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who know the joyful sound and who walk, O Lord, in the light of your presence. I love this, Psalm 97, too. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. Have you ever seen those church flags where there's like a rainbow lamb and there's like a lion with like bad hair? You never see those flags with darkness and clouds, right? You just, those aren't the flags of the charismatic churches. But here it says in Psalm 97 too that clouds and darkness are around him and righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. What is the concept? The concept is God is the one who orders 
light from darkness. He's the one that can see when we can't see. And when Jesus comes into the world, you have all these people preaching order, and he says, no, let me set the record straight. These are the things that are important. So, in Hebrew, the word uh, justice means two things. It means the word sedek, which means a correct or co be correct, and the word umispat, which is found in Italian, not Hebrew at all, um, and that's the word verdict. So the word in Hebrew justice is two joined words, a correct verdict, okay? So true to the actual facts that happen, and a verdict is, is the application of law to those facts. Does that make sense? So what is justice? Justice is in fairness. That's not what it is. People have no idea what it means. What it means is you take the facts and then you apply the law to the facts. Not grace and not mercy. Those are essential and those come after in a hierarchical order. But first you have the facts and then second you have the law that's applied to those facts. So I want to talk about a current day example. This week we have a Breonna Taylor case come out. And when I first heard about the case, um, I was like months later about the case. And they told me that cops broke into these people's house without knocking, jumped on this lady's bed, they're racist, and they shot her in her sleep, and they're getting away with it. That's literally the story I heard, and I didn't hear, and I didn't hear anything else until, whatever, months later, I think probably two weeks ago, I actually looked at the case, the facts of the case. And so, these are the facts that I've been told, which are actually wholly untrue. If you see what came before the grand jury this week, um, she was standing in the hallway with her boyfriend standing right next to her, and her, they open the door, and the boyfriend's pointing a gun at the cops, and they, she shoots one of the cops. And the cops shoot back and strike her. It's, it's sad that they strike her, but they're not racist cops hunting down people, sneaking into their bedrooms, and shooting people. That's literally untrue. It's unjust to say that. And we have riots in Louisville and Kentucky, and two cops are, are themselves shot. One black man was shot in the stomach, he needs surgery, they, they hope he's gonna make it. The other guy shot in the hip, based upon an unjust representation of what actually happened. So what are the facts? Criminal shoots at cops, cops shoot back, collateral damage, it's a bad thing. We don't want that to happen, that's a bad thing. Let's place the law, let's place the law on it. Did you intentionally try to murder someone to sleep in our bed? No, I did not. We were shooting back. If police don't shoot back at the bad guys, guess what happens? They all die. And their children are without fathers and mothers. And the, and the society is torn apart by the wolves. That's what happens. And so you take the facts, and you look at the law, and you say, there's no way in any just society ever that these guys are guilty, ever. And we have riots across our country over the last weeks because people lie about the facts. It was literally unjust what they did. And, and I was reading, I, I read pastors and, and leaders in ministry statements about what happened the day after the verdict, and they said, I can't believe this injustice keeps happening in our country. And I wanna I wanna fly through the internet and choke them, <laughs> choke them, and then fly back to my house. The Lord hasn't given me those powers yet, so I'm not able to do that. You know, in Ephesians chapter um, 6, it tells us to take on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to 
fight the enemy in the day of evil. Do you know that scripture? Have you heard that? It was like, there's some kind of children's song right now. Built a friendly night. That's not a good song. In, the, in that set of armor that we're supposed to wear to battle the enemy, the deceiver, the father of lies, the first piece of armor we're called to wear is the belt of truth. Without the belt of truth being worn, none of the weapons of our warfare are effective anymore. The sword can't go on right, the legs can't go on right, the upper body doesn't go on right. If we don't have the belt rightly placed on our, on our spiritual warfare, we will not rightly engage in war. And we have a culture that, you guys have to understand, there are two sides that are incentivized to get the most people to watch their show so they can make the most money. They're not incentivized to represent truth. It's just not how it works. It's entertainment. They're, they're incentivized to tell you the most horrific thing, so you go, oh my gosh, everybody turn on the news, turn it on! I can't believe it's happening! Then the whole family are now. And guess what happens? The advertising dollars go up, and they all make more money because they're incentivized not to tell the truth, but to tell the most inflammatory version of it. Yeah. And so we heard for months and months, did you like the paper? Did you like that effect? We heard for months that they were saying this horrific act and it was racially motivated and it was an absolute lie. We got Christians like, what? Why? And I'm like, man, sorry. And I, you know, this is what it says in Proverbs 19:11. A person in wisdom is slow to make decisions, or slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And now we have a culture that you, they believe it's their glory to carry offenses and, and lift them above their head for other people. Wow. Oh, no, 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 it's my glory to carry everybody's offense and carry it around. No, 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 it's actually quite the opposite. It's slow to anger. It's slow to judgment because we have to slow down. Because that word in the, in the Hebrew, it means division of a sword. It, in, in the Greek, it means the right verdict of law. In Hebrew, it means a sword sundering between difficult ideas. And we have, we have um, Solomon, the wisest king, the wisest person in the whole world outside of Jesus. And they have the iconic story of Solomon. These two women say, one says, it's my baby. The other says, it's my baby. And they come before Solomon, and Solomon's like, all right, let's see both your babies. We'll just chop it in half, and we'll be like half half. Won't that be fun? Half baby. You're <laughs> like, and that's horrible. Sorry. And um, he takes the sword. <laughs> My son's laughing. Thank you. Good. That was. Okay. He takes the sword. He's like, you got to chop it in half. David, why are you turning the sword? Because it's a perfect, perfect picture of wisdom cutting things in hearts in half to show the real intent of truth and the real effect of the heart. It's this incredibly complex picture of wisdom. And the scripture says, people don't get this, but the scripture says like, it's the sword of the spirit able to divide between the thoughts and the intents of the heart between bone and marrow. Well, why does it say it? Because it's very complicated, integrated issues that correct judgment. But the sword of the spirit is able to divide the Hebrew word for judgment, cut in asunder, and decide clearly what the issue is before you. And 
And Jesus, in Revelation chapter 19, and I think Revelation chapter 22, both places, it's, and he comes to the earth with a sword in his mouth because his words are able to divide these things and clarify them and order them and place them and protect like in the appropriate places and say, what are the most important things? What are the things we're called to care about? What are the things that we need as a society to even function? So justice in Greek is, um, excuse me, in Hebrew was, was the true or righteous verdict in Greek, I got it backwards, is the separating or sundering in a trial or contest. And so I want to talk about one other portion of scripture before I shut it down about things that God really doesn't like, okay? And Proverbs 6, 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. One, haughty eyes. Why do, how, why do haughty eyes bother the Lord? Because haughty eyes mean I know more than you and I'm arrogant and you don't know more than me. God really just dislikes that. He's like, I created the world. You're like a small bug. You're like a bug with skin. Like, you don't know more than me. You don't know more than God's way. And if you have haughty eyes, you refuse to subject yourself to God's way and His word. God doesn't like that. Second thing, a lying tongue. So, there's really well-intentioned and meaning Christians, but if they believe the voice of a lying tongue, then they apply justice wrongly. Because they're, they're in, in good intention trying to apply God's word or way in justice, but they're basing it upon actual lies. Lying tongue is bad, destroys society and people. Um, hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood is a really, really bad thing. And it's one of the things that actually the Old Testament, do you know that there are more than one unpardonable sin in the Bible? You know, in, in the New Testament we have, Jesus says there's an unpardonable, unpardonable sin, and that is um, dishonoring the Holy Spirit. When you know something is of the work of the Holy Spirit and you mock it, dishonor it, or discredit it. That's, uh, that's Jesus says that you can't be pardoned for that. The Old Testament says there's another sin that you don't get pardoned for. And um, this is what it is. 2 Kings 24.4 And also for the innocent blood he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was unwilling to forgive. Uh, Numbers 35.33 Do not pollute the land where you live, for bloodshed pollutes the land. And no atonement or forgiveness can be made for the land on which the blood is shed, except by the blood of the one who shed. Revelation 6, 9 through 10. And when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they upheld. In verse 10, chapter 7, they cried out in a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood and judge those who dwell upon the earth? People have this idea like that heaven is like I'm, I'm like floating on the cloud, I'm like having really, really like annoyingly long praise and worship services. This is the other day. This is the other day of the Lord. Do we have days here? I don't know. But there is actually like a desire even in heaven for the justice of God to go forth. It's not just mercy, man. It's not just mercy, though, but the saints are crying out to God saying, will you punish the wicked? and let your justice go forth. And I'm not saying that um, the shedding of innocent blood is, a, is an unforgivable sin, because God forgives, the new, in the new covenant, um, God forgives all our sins, the Holy Spirit one is the questionable one, but um, the shedding of innocent blood doesn't just go away. 
And we have a nation right now that sees a million unborn lives executed per year. And if you had a born abortion, you've gone through that experience, God loves you, He has mercy and grace, His hands and arms are for you, and there's, there's redemption and restoration in Him. But we have to recognize, church, that we have a million unborn lives executed per year, okay? And we have people saying, I don't make enough money as this class. According to God's hierarchy, which one of those things is more important? The shedding of innocent blood or the equal spending of cash? It seems to me that one of them is an unpardonable sin that brings judgment upon a nation. And I would, this is David Abelhart, not, not uh, the Word of God, would say the judgment on our nation right now has more to do with the million babies that are executed every year than the idea of inequality. And there's a hierarchy in God's moral order. There's first justice, then mercy, then faithfulness. And God has called us to be a people that care about justice and that stand up for the innocent lives that are taken. Without life, you have nothing. Then the proverb says it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Because with life, there's redemption, there's opportunity, forgiveness, restoration for your entire life. Get pulled into the plan of God. Jesus is our advocate before the judge, and he advocates First uh, John chapter 2 on our behalf. It says, no, this one's mine. He's righteous. He's standing in my stead. He's coming from my side. But if you're not alive, you don't get a chance to do that. And it's my obligation to teach the church what Jesus says about the most important things. And the most important things are the innocent being taken. That's the most important thing. There are other things that are important, right? But this is the most important thing in our culture right now. So um, it's a weird place to close, but I'm going to close it there. And I just challenge you to get in, your, in the scripture and read what Jesus actually says. And don't listen to what other people say, whether they're famous pastors or famous Christian leaders or not. Actually look at what Jesus says and what the words actually mean, right? And that way we can walk through this life and say, you know, I'm relying on the creator of the universe and his voice and his way, not whatever way culture tells me to walk. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org.